we're definitely seeing a continuation of this theme of balancing risk and cost. It's really at the point in the first time in 25 years where we're seeing companies actually invest in risk. That's Kevin Keegan, a partner in PwC strategy consulting business, and Brian Houck, a PwC partner with over 25 years of supply chain experience. This is Heather Horn, and I'm happy you've joined me for another episode in our Forecast 2021 podcast miniseries. Last August, I had Kevin on the show to talk about the supply chain. At that point, the U.S. pandemic was at its peak and companies were scrambling. Fast forward to today, we have a much clearer view of trade, tax policy, and where companies are making investments, especially in the areas of risk management and supply assurance. So stay tuned as we look at today's supply chain opportunities, challenges, and areas of diversification. So Brian and Kevin, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about supply chain. And in particular, I think we're going to focus in on supply chain diversification, given everything that's happened with the pandemic and all the other changes we've seen over the past year. I think companies have realized more and more that this is a topic that's important to focus on. So maybe just to kick things off, Kevin, can you start with giving us some high-level thoughts on why companies should be focused on this? Yeah, thanks, Heather. And it's uh, nice to talk again. I think the last time we spoke was back in August. And I think, as everybody knows, at that point, the pandemic was at its peak. A lot of companies were still really scrambling uh, just on a very tactical level. And um, we also had no vaccines in sight, and we had a national election. So was pretty chaotic. Fast forwarding now, nine whole months later, we're seeing a few things that are really relevant on a go forward basis. You know, one of them is there's actually at this point a much clearer view of trade and tax policy. And companies are using some of that as a foundation to make investments that have longer term horizons. The other thing that we're seeing is um, a continuing importance or emphasis around this notion of, of resilience and specifically around Resilience is a valued competency. So what we're seeing as CFOs and COOs talk is a balance. Obviously, supply chain cost and direct material cost remain the number one priority. No change there. But in combination with that, there's an increased level of investment discussion around the notion of uh, risk management, as well as uh, supply assurance associated with that. And so we're definitely seeing companies starting to get very serious about investments in things like eliminating single points of failure, working on end-to-end contract terms, which many companies unfortunately found to be very inconsistent and therefore unreliable during the uh, early days of the pandemic. We're also seeing conversations around uh, supply chain structure investment that are integrating landed cost considerations, including tax, so kind of above the line and below the line types of considerations. And then lastly, I'd say that given advancements in the past year or so around things like digital, we're definitely seeing investments in you know, micro automations, better analytics, better visualizations, and so forth to make the end-to-end value stream players, you know, partners, third-party contractors, et cetera, all up to speed with the same sets of data and be able to act on that, you know, much faster with more confidence as well. So 
definitely seeing a continuation of this theme of balancing risk and cost. So one question before we go on, you mentioned the single point of failure. And, you know, when I asked my first question, I focused on sort of the pandemic, but obviously we've also seen issues like what happened with the ship in the Suez Canal. And so how are companies thinking about maybe more broadly bringing more, I'll use your word, resilience to the supply chain? Yeah. So maybe just to take a a few points on that question. I think one is um, companies are concerned about single points of supply. So one supplier, one manufacturing site, one distribution route. And they're starting to look at ways to diversify around that, especially in known areas where they suffer from, you know, for example, trade policy issues or where there's um, you know, a known level of labor unrest or natural disaster tendencies. And so I think they're taking a serious look at that. And they're doing it now on existing products, but certainly in a design or sourcing perspective, they're looking at diversifying around single points of failure as they bring new products to market so that there is an alternative that's preset, not necessarily fixed cost, but variable cost, and a playbook to go enact it fairly quickly, um, because that was another big issue that companies had. They had solutions to work around the, the issues associated with the pandemic. But it just took a long time and many companies lost revenue or had increased spikes in cost as a result of that. And then how does this, uh, you mentioned tax and trade policy, and I know there are still some unopened questions, but one of the things we've been hearing, we've been doing some other geopolitical discussions. And one of the things we've been hearing is about onshoring and companies bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. And so how does that fit in as companies are thinking about supply chain? Yeah. So I think part of it is um, diversifying around trade policy risk. A lot of companies over the past couple of decades have really optimized cost, which really translated to you know low-cost manufacturing, low-cost sources of supply, but increased risk. And, and we definitely saw a lot of that back in the early COVID days where people just got caught with you know, great cost structures, but no way to get supply. I think now what we're seeing is you know, companies are really starting to invest in things like you know, building in-country or in-region for local consumption where they can, at least on a final assembly and test perspective. Um, and that gives a couple of advantages. One, it gives a more predictable cost in market. And second, it actually helps to reduce lead time and in inventory positions. And then third, I guess, as a final point would be, it also gives options. So if um, you've got capacity to build or source in one location, but you get stuck in another, you can reroute where orders are filled from. And that actually creates some level of resilience as well. So there's many reasons why companies are thinking on a local basis. Within the US, I would say that because of the new administration's supply chain policies and buy local, that we're definitely seeing some companies in some sectors starting to pay attention to that in terms of local content, both labor and, and materials, as a way to gain advantage in government contracting down the road. And then, Brian, maybe pulling you into the conversation, particularly in those last couple of questions, I know you focus on consumer products. So anything different that you're seeing consumer companies in dealing with these types of issues? It's really at the point in the first time in 25 years where we're seeing companies actually invest in risk. 
over time when we've had major events, whether it be labor-driven, geopolitical-driven, or natural disaster-driven, there was always a, a lagging amount of talk after that about we need to do something about risk, and three or four months later would um, fade away. But what I think companies are, are realizing that there is some sustained components in the supply chain that um, appear to be issues that companies are going to be facing for quite a long time. An example of that is I have a, a client whose um, primary distribution network is predominant in Southern California. And recently, we went through an exercise of evaluating that network, not only from a, a cost structure and a service responsiveness, um, but also risk. And one of the determinations was that if there were to be a major um, earthquake in Southern California, it basically almost shut down the entire company. So in the course of this work, the, the client actually made a decision to invest $7.5 million in operating expense to locate a new distribution center outside that zone. So we're actually starting to see people invest in mitigating um, and avoiding risk um, and taking on cost to do that because there's now that key tie, as Kevin mentioned, to driving revenue. If my operation can't function, I can't sell products. So we see that trend kind of emerging very quickly and, and expect it to be a big theme over the next 12 to 18 months. And maybe this goes without saying, but it seems like the pandemic is really what brought this home for companies, that these are not risks that exist at some distant point in the future, but they're things you really do need to deal with today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the things foundationally that the pandemic um, really highlighted more than anything is some of the supply chain weaknesses and the speed to make decisions. Uh, a lot of companies, although had um, good processes in place, even the best supply chains were not really equipped to respond at the speed they needed to to recover. So we're, we're seeing that big focus, um, you know, not only how do we get ahead of the events, but how do we structure to be able to respond quickly? And I think the pandemic has had an influence on that. But the reality is uh, at PwC, we've been talking about the megatrends for the last five to seven years. And one of those has been resource scarcity. I think we're there now. Um, and it's really started in the United States around labor, particularly hourly labor that works in manufacturing and distribution centers. But it is extending to products. You're working with many clients now trying to solve for the electronic component shortages that are happening right now. Uh, we know now chlorine is emerging, chicken wings, um, you know, you, you name it. Uh, those are realities and, and we do not see those, um, you know, subsiding anytime soon. So companies need to actually be thinking ahead of risk. Um, and if you're not ahead, you're going to be behind and it's going to materially impact your business. So I'm going to ask a question from a consumer perspective, and then we'll get back to the business perspective. So as a consumer, you know, reading the newspaper every day, chicken wings, to your point, electronics. Obviously, we all saw what happened last spring with all the shortages. So is this idea that there will be shortages or that shortages are potential something we should just sort of expect from now on? Because pre-pandemic, I don't remember there being a lot of discussions about sort of key things we're used to being able to buy, being out of stock or being unable to buy them. Yeah, I think there's going to be persistence in categories and, and what we're seeing is waves, right? Waves of um, shortages and then time um, for correction. And if you look at the administration's, um, current administration's plans around um, investing in supply chain, you know, one of the focal areas has been that electronic and electronic component space. 
But if you think about the, the lead time that it requires to establish um, and stabilize a, a domestic plant to manufacture microcontrollers, for example, it's not going to happen in the next few weeks, it's not going to happen in the next few months. It's likely to be a two or three year event. So um, you really need to be thinking about it long term and consumers are going to be impacted. Obviously, the not being able to go to the store and buy your product or go online is, is a key thing people are experiencing right now. But also um, inflationary cost. If you've looked at, for example, graphic cards right now, <laughs> and my kids recently were trying to hunt one down, and and they're trading, you know, aftermarkets for four to five times their their selling price. So I think consumers are going to be impacted by these trends, both in their pocketbook as well as just their ability to acquire those materials. I was reading an article. So different type of supply chain, but I was talking about strawberries and how having to predict a year or more ahead of the demand for strawberries and the growing season, and everything else. So obviously, it's a little bit different, but at the same time, you know, it involves planning ahead and everything else. So, Kevin, let me go back to you for a moment. I know one of the concepts that you have talked about in the past is a trusted supply chain. So how does that fit into this conversation? It's a build off of some of the things that we just talked about. I think. Uh, you know, there's three different attributes that we're hearing about when people talk about this notion of trust. So one is reliability. You know, as we've talked, the supply chain reliability becomes a really important factor for revenue perspective to work your way around natural disasters and, and so many other things that we've been seeing over the past several years. And that, you know, really goes from supply to where things are built out to uh, routings. I think the second item is the notion of security. Here, obviously, we see lots of data breaches with supply chains. We see fraud and counterfeit products in supply chains. And so being able to have a secure supply chain becomes a really important topic. And then the third attribute that we're seeing in this notion of trust is honesty. So the idea about being honest around carbon footprint of a product, um, the use of fair labor practices and so forth, that becomes increasingly important. Um, especially amongst the investor community and others in the publicly traded company environment, but certainly also we're seeing it in the private equity environment as well uh, as a point of value. And so, you know, looking back, a lot of things about the supply chain operating model, as Brian said, over the past 25 years or so, has really been about cost. And so trust was really like a blind trust. You trusted your third-party manufacturers and, and their suppliers to be able to provide information about their financial stability, alternate routes, et cetera. And we found through the pandemic that that really wasn't the case. Um, we also found even earlier than that with the tariff wars in 2019 that that wasn't the case, that people really didn't understand country of origin, for example, and they got nailed with a lot of taxes and other issues. So now we're really seeing supply chain trust as a competency. It's really something that Many companies are starting to value. They're talking about it in their quarterly reports, their annual reports. We've even seen a company recently put in um, what we call an ESG nutrition label on their products that actually indicates the carbon footprint, you know, the countries of origin for their products, et cetera, and that they're using fair labor practices as a way you know, for consumer electronics, at least in this particular case, to be able to convince the buyer that they've got a product that has some tangible societal benefit, right? In other words, you can trust this product from that perspective. So we're definitely seeing this as an area where CFOs and COOs are collaborating to figure out the right types of investments. 
It is a longer-term ROI typically, but one that many companies are starting to invest in now because they see that this is going to be an important factor for them to be you know, seen as a, as a company with fair practices in the marketplace. And that really spans across all different types of industries as well. So it's something that we're definitely seeing a big trend on. So Brian, are you seeing this as well, this idea of a trusted supply network? And does this impact sales to consumers as well as to other businesses? Or do we see a focus in one place or the other? No, I think um, in just extending the trust equation, it's trust and transparency. Not only is it, do I need to trust you and your product, but I also want to know all the factors that Kevin had outlined of where it's been, um, where you got the ingredients, what's the workforce look like. And if you um, date back and, and look at the trends and what consumers say over the last 10 years, um, ESG has always been something that consumers have thought about. Um, but really, in the last couple of years, we've seen this massive acceleration in, in it being a critical decision to buying product. And that really started, um, ironically, in Asia as being a leading source of where the consumer, you know, it's a top one or two, depending on the category factor or something like cosmetics, they want to know where it came from and they won't buy things from certain areas. And we're seeing the same results in our global studies that we've um, just completed recently um, in the U.S. and in EMEA. So increasingly, customers are going to make buying decisions based on trust, based on ESG, based on transparency. So uh, we are um, talking to a lot of clients now that, you know, many have invested significantly in the reporting aspect of ESG. And our challenge to everybody out there is that's just not enough. So how are you actually embedding that into the decision framework of the company's operation, not only from a strategic standpoint, but from a day-to-day standpoint? And an example is if we have a choice, whether to fulfill a direct to um customer order from a DC um, location that's cheaper versus one that maybe had um, reduces the carbon footprint, right? At some point in time, we believe that those factors will be embedded into each individual decision that's made. Um, and there will be an increased weighting towards those ESG factors. So Kevin, you mentioned counterfeit goods. And again, I think that's something, you know, historically you've thought about if you're buying, let's say a purse, it's a counterfeit or some other types of different consumer goods. But I can see from an industrial perspective, this could also be a very major consideration. So how are companies getting assurance around, I don't even know the right word for it, I guess, validity of the goods they're purchasing? There's a lot of ways that companies are trying to work on that level of trust and transparency. One of the things that we're starting to see pick up is the use of blockchain to certify uh, transactions as things move across the supply chain. So a lot of people talk about blockchain relative to things like cryptocurrency and commercial clearance and so forth. And that's certainly an aspect. But blockchain technology also has a really great way to uh, be able to track things from a true end-to-end perspective. And you're right. Um, it, it, it certainly is in consumer goods. People want to, you know, make sure that they're getting an authentic good from a brand that they trust, et cetera. But when it comes to industrial products, computer products, et cetera, there's just a lot more counterfeit components and subassemblies and, and so forth that can, you know, really get in the way of a, a good functioning product, a safe product and things like that. Obviously, Products like uh, automobiles, uh, airplanes, and so forth have been on top of this for quite a while. But we're also seeing, you know, uh, more and more companies wanting to establish that level of certification end to end in consumer electronics and other things that we use on a day to day basis. 
So you both have mentioned investment and, and Kevin, most recently, you said sometimes these projects have a longer ROI. And, and Brian, you gave this example of a big investment someone made to diversify their supply chain. So maybe Kevin, starting with you, how are companies thinking about payback, particularly if it may not be immediately obvious, like maybe it's good not to have counterfeit goods in your supply chain but it, it might not make a difference tomorrow. You know, most companies, you know, at the CFO, COO level have set up tiered levels of investment. So those things that generate in-year benefit, right, that are self-paying within the course of a, a particular year, and then some portfolio of things that are longer term. A lot of those have really been around, you know, ERP platforms and other major IT investments. But what we're seeing is that uh, companies are now starting to balance the longer term ROIs with things like design for ESG or design for resilience and so forth. And that's definitely coming into play, especially in the past few months. I've heard more conversations around being able to take a longer term view of that. And I think part of the reason of that is because the investor community has been very public about their desire to see companies really establish the reliability of their supply chain and the accountability of their supply chain as top areas. So in other words, what we're seeing is that to build trust, you have to take a longer term view, just like you do with infrastructure projects and so forth. They're not going to benefit things. In fact, they may create more cost in the short term. But really what you're doing is setting up that next generation of revenue, the next generation of consumer demand, customer demand, et cetera. And Brian, I was fascinated by your example of this company that obviously made a big investment to get out of, I'm in SoCal, so I know the earthquake zone. Uh, but so how do they how did they think about that? And how did they determine it was worth that investment? Our communities never um, of clients never like to think about risk avoidance and how to value that. Um, but I think we've come to that crossroads where it's just quite frankly, part of the equation that needs to be considered. So I would um, challenge our clients to think about the definition of ROI itself. And it needs to evolve um, with the needs to start to progress these strategies, particularly in the supply chain. And Kevin um, mentioned it right up front. So, you know, the old adage was, you know, how do we balance cost and service? And that was the marching order of supply chain. Um, that's changed, right? Into that equation now needs to be the element of growth. So how do we value what the supply chain does to enable um growth in a business, but risk. And, and they're all correlated together. So I think part of the first step is how do you tie that decision making? How do you scenario plan? How do you understand what outcomes could happen um, if we invest versus we don't invest? And that ROI equation starts to point you in directions, as I mentioned in that example, that you know the, the ROI, we may never, quote unquote, receive ROI in the traditional sense. But certainly, if there's a natural disaster, we would have multiple folds of an ROI that we wouldn't had had we not done it in the first place, right? So I think it is about changing the equation um, and thinking about it. And you know, what I would also say is that a lot of these investments aren't solely focused on risk and resiliency. There's usually other operational and supply chain benefits that's attached to them. Um, you know, one of the big um, things that we're seeing and spending a lot of times with clients is what we call visibility as a strategy of how do you get your arms around the end-to-end -end events that happen throughout the supply chain to enable better decision-making. Traditionally, five years ago, we might have wanted to just figure out where a boat is on an ocean and where our product's coming in. But increasingly, what we're doing is we're embedding these risk metrics directly into those control towers. Um, so it is part of what our operators see every day, and it's a part of their, their core foundational decision-making. 
So if that risk event never happens, um, that same investment we put in place to invest in risk is also creating operational benefit, whether that um, improves our fill rate to our customers or whether it makes sure that we, um, you know, source an order and, and ship it in the most economical and sometimes, you know, most carbon neutral uh, way possible. Yeah, lots for companies to think about right now. So Kevin, coming back to you, between the two of you, you've given a lot of examples of investments companies are making, but any others that you're seeing that you would want to highlight for the audience? Uh, perhaps just to build on the point that Brian was raising earlier and that you know these investments are different types of investments than we've traditionally seen. Another example for consideration is this idea of um, investing in third-party data as part of demand planning. So what we're seeing, for example, are conversations with third-party data aggregators and analytics companies that take a look, for example, at health trends in different countries where people sell or produce goods, because that could be a leading indicator of labor shortage if, um, you know, all the factory workers tend you know, to get ill or if there's a political unrest about uh, wages, for example. And that could be er early warning system that they may have a capacity issue to go deal with in that particular area, which gives them the, the chance, the lead time to, to move to another area. Um, so we're definitely seeing that. And there's other examples that go into play. For example, companies are putting together within their uh, standard operating model, alternative models that are hardwired and pre-enabled so that if there is a disruption, they can very quickly see the disruption, to Brian's point, earlier visibility uh, really is a revenue equation and a cost equation, and then move it with a pre-approved playbook to another site. And we're seeing investments in those kinds of strategies as well. So tied out to the control tower and being able to reroute things more dynamically. And what's interesting is the pandemic really did provide a fair amount of quantitative information on the cost of a supply disruption or multiple supply disruptions as the case was and still is in many industries. And so CFOs and COOs are working with that those larger data sets to start to think about, you know, what is the cost of a disruption of 20% at a six-week lead time to recover? And they could start to do the math on that and figure out what the investment uh, returns could be if they were able to solve those problems. And that's making the investments a little bit easier. The other thing I'd say is that this is also a top-down situation. Board members are absolutely asking their management teams about risk and saying, what is the investment profile that you guys are doing to be able to improve the risk profile of the company? Because we don't want to have reputational risk by not being able to fill orders on time. We don't want revenue risk that impacts the share price, et cetera. And so there's a top-down push as well. It's not just quantitative. So Kevin, one of the things we spoke about last time was the role of the CFO in this whole conversation and that there is a role for the CFO in this conversation. And so again, if let's make this practical, if I'm a CFO or a controller and I'm listening to this conversation, you said there's pressure from top down. I'm sure there's operational pressures. How does the CFO fit in and, and where should they start if they're not hearing conversations like this in their organization? So there's a, a strategic role and a, and a tactical role. The strategic role is really to think about sources of revenue and ways people want to engage and their expectations on reliability for, you know, fill rate and lead time two, three years down the road and what capabilities exist today and what don't. And then the second 
strategic thing is what risks do we face associated with our capabilities today in being able to serve that market in the way that we think it needs to be served. So taking a longer view of the operating model and the business model, obviously, given what they know, uh, acquisitions, divestitures, and all that aside, you know, in the core business that they have today, that's a key area. The second is to make sure that the shorter term projects that are funded, that are expected to provide in-year benefits, for example, really do deliver. You know, our experience is that some do and some don't. But if you can maintain a cash neutral investment portfolio that allows you then to take a a longer term um, view of the other parts of your portfolio that are more strategic, you can at least predict where you're going to have cost impacts in the shorter term for these longer term returns. And that's another factor that CFOs are working on with COOs to figure out that level of accountability for those programs that are launched to make sure that they really do deliver what they need to to maintain the cash flow and provide enough cash to invest for the longer haul. And Brian, as you're working with clients, when you see CFOs that are doing this well, what are some of the best practices that they're using? You know, the fact of the matter is supply chains are becoming more complex, not less complex. So we've done some analysis uh, on the retail space, and we've looked at um, what the impact of increased omnichannel fulfillment will be. And the number that we've come up is $68 billion in incremental costs. And then not just the cost, but you think about the difference in the complexity of shipping to a store and have a consumer shop in the store versus multiple types of distribution centers, um, parcel trucks flying all over the place. So if you read a lot of the quarter reports for retail and consumer focused business, you'll, you'll find um, CFOs having to put these little justifications like, you know, $10 million of anticip- unanticipated fulfillment costs. The companies that are doing this well have already invested in understanding that new complex cross structure. So they have their arms around um, when the front end of the business says, hey, we want to do this really cool thing uh, around omni-channel. You have the CFOs there saying, okay, what does it cost? And what's going to be the return? And what are we going to get out of it? Um, in some cases, you have to have a growth platform to justify that. But people um, that are doing this well are thinking about the cost structure. Well, like, how do I execute in this complex environment more effectively? The FP&A teams have a clear view on what's driving that cost structure, and they're working proactively with their um, CO counterpart to say, how do we continue to drive this down and mitigate that cost structure, knowing that we have to do it because it's critical to growth, but we want to do it in a way that doesn't completely destroy our bottom line. Well, and I guess you made this point earlier, but it's more complicated now because it isn't just about saving money, but it's if you don't invest this money, maybe you don't have the same revenue opportunities or otherwise. So it's definitely a more complicated equation versus just have I reduced costs through these changes to my supply chain? Yeah, absolutely. And, and much like uh, you know, finance function historically was really cost focused, so was the supply chain both have to break out of the pattern. So in that decision-making, they, they need to understand those trade-offs and cost of growth. Um, you know, most businesses, you, you can't exist today without having an e-com fulfillment channel. Well, it's very expensive. So it's not about do we do it, it's how do we do it in a way that is going to protect profit as well as the customer experience and enable that growth platform. So one more question specific to consumers Given the growth you talked about e-commerce and, you know, I think we're all used to this idea. I want it today. I'm going to get it today or I'm going to get it tomorrow. And I'm not really willing to wait. And then the pandemic came and people got a little bit used to things taking longer. So are we seeing both maybe in the direct to consumer or the business market 
more patience for, I want the right quality. I want the trusted product and I'm willing to wait a a few more days for that. Or people really are just about, I want it now. And that's something companies need to keep in mind. Unfortunately, (laughs) they still want it now. Um, So the expectations have drastically increased. Uh, The really interesting thing has been what COVID has done is it's brought a whole new demographic um, into the fold for not shopping at stores. And when we have done our research um, throughout COVID um, across all categories of of spending, it's a 5 to 7% increase in omni-channel fulfillment that consumers say will be sustained going forward. Now, that percentage on paper sounds like a small amount, but I said that percentage of 5 to 7% equals $68 billion in cost. Um, but it also um, requires you to create a new and unique experience. So unfortunately, we're on a position of we have to juggle all the balls at once now. And, and we don't see um, any indication that consumers are being more patient than they have in the past. And um, they're being continually taught that, you know, I order it today, I get it today. I order it today, I get it tomorrow. And, and we don't see that necessarily changing. Got it. So risk and opportunity. So then, Kevin, going back to you on this, continuing the conversation on best practices, anything to add in terms of the role of the CFO and where they can add value from a best practice perspective? Yeah, I think at a peer level, they have to be able to work with all the different functions to talk about the operating model and to get their input in terms of priority. To Brian's point, if the sales team really needs an omni-channel approach, or they need to be able to offer physical products, you know, as a service in some cases, or, you know, if there's a combination of software and, and services in, let's say, a high-tech environment, that they're the ones who are able to break that down in terms of, okay, what capabilities do we have? What do we need? How often will they be used? And how do I link these investments to the, the revenue protection goals that we have or the revenue expansion goals that we have? And so they become essentially a budget broker that works across the functions at the senior levels to be able to advocate for those types of investments, as opposed to just telling the COO to go do that work. Because ultimately, they've got to address you know the shareholder base. They've got to address the board in terms of how they're prioritizing these types of investments. I fully agree with Brian's comment as he sees it in consumer that the supply chain is becoming only more complex and the issues that the supply chain are facing on a global basis in terms of tariff, trade, uh, and so forth, legal entity structures, those are becoming much more complex as well. And we don't see that necessarily just as a COVID-influenced activity. We see that as something that's been there for a while. It's been latent. And, and really, it's coming to light now in, in very specific ways. So as we go forward, I think there will be this demand for fast and reliable commitment dates for fulfillment. There'll need to be a level of transparency at the ESG level. And we'll certainly start to see you know, this notion of, of trust and reliability being at parallel with, with cost. In other words, we're really seeing that the CFO will have to help the COO to elevate supply chain from a cost center to a true strategy center. Yeah, you said that the supply chain is becoming more complex. And when you were saying that, I kept thinking the role of the CFO is also becoming more complex. Oh, just one more thing for finance to think about. So gentlemen, appreciate all the insight. Let's wrap up with a couple last questions. I'm going to ask you each a different closing question. So Brian, I'll start with you. And so if you had just 
30 seconds, a minute to tell a CFO why they should focus on this now, what would you focus on? I think, quite frankly, it is going to be a, a critical foundational capability to, to drive growth in the post-COVID world. So being able to put yourself in a position not only to understand the risk, whether it be financial or customer facing, I see the CFO um, group being the really the function that mediates those trade-off decisions between the group. Um, and they're in the best position to do that. That is going to be super critical. Like every company needs that, that voice of reason and that voice of balance, um, between the functions to help drive the right decisions that are going to be creative to both the consumer as well as our shareholders. Uh, so I think evolving to just the number crunchers and the number runners to really a company that is facilitating investments and, and helping scenario plan what the trade offs and the impacts are is a absolute critical path for for the the CFO community. All right. Well, you definitely convinced me. So Kevin, we spoke about this, I think it was nine, 10 months ago, as you mentioned, and definitely it's, if anything, just gotten more complicated. So if we were to fast forward, let's say another year from now, and we were talking next spring, where do you think the conversation is headed? I think the conversation is going to be headed towards, you know, do we have a handle on the points of failure that really caused us major disruptions over the past year or two? Um, and do we understand ways to work around those at a tactical, practical level? And I think that's one of the core questions that's going to be asked. I think the other question is, are we positioned for success going forward with the structures that allow our supply chain and our overall end-to-end -end model to serve customer needs in the way that customers want them to be served? in a way that gets ahead of regulatory policy, in a way that gives us flexibility to optimize cost structures, um, in a way that gives us a chance to you know, really maximize the revenue given our capabilities as a firm working internally and, and with partners as well. And so that flexibility to handle the complexity you know, through better IT tools, uh, through better partnerships and contracts and things like that are really going to be part of the equation a year or even two out. All right. Well, definitely left us a lot to think about. So Brian, Kevin, really appreciate all your insight. Thanks for joining me. Great. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. Next week, we'll be talking about revenue performance obligations. And as a reminder, on May 19th, we're hosting a Rebuilding Revenue webcast focusing on the accounting and reporting trends in revenue. To register for one hour of CPE credit, go to viewpoint.pwc.com. And on Thursdays, join me for our Forecast 2021 mini-series for CFOs and controllers so that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.